So we're in Daniel 4. And as we do so, I'm trying to set an uncomfortable, awkward sense because what we are going to talk about and what the Scripture is asking us to talk about this morning is difficult, is challenging. How many of you grew up with a sibling or you ever got into a problem at school or something went down and you got blamed for it and it wasn't your fault, right? Or even at work, you get blamed for something. Oh, I'm sensing maybe, maybe this is more relative for you all. That at work you get blamed for something and it wasn't your fault. And how often do we want to say, excuse me, it's spiritually, my friends, do we do this? Do we play the blame game with God when things are difficult in our life? Because that's where the text is taking us today. You know me, you know that I won't avoid the, the big challenge in the Scripture. And the big challenge here today is, it seems like God is making something very, very bad happen on purpose. Wow. That's not my picture of God. Now, here's the thing that we have to deal with in our society. And that is simply this, that we have a society and sometimes we have churches that want to take Jesus like a piece of Play-Doh. Did you ever grow up with this thing? It's, it's the Play-Doh uh, 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 manufacturing plant. You took your raw Play-Doh and you put it into a form and you push down, you squeeze out your, you know. That's kind of what we do with Jesus. You say, what? What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, because like, like, you know, one person's Jesus may treat us this way and have these kinds of expectations and, and love us in this way, in this fashion, in this manner. And another person's Jesus may look this way and it, it, he responds this way and he reacts this way. And another person's Jesus is just this particular kind of Jesus that look. The challenge for us this morning and for eternity is to understand that we have written in the Gospels that exact example is that those that Jesus spoke with wanted to form Him into their kind of Jesus. And it's one of the few times you'll see Jesus get very particular with His language. It's one of the few times you'll see Jesus say something like, You are of your father, Satan. Jesus wouldn't make it in modern psychology today. I'm just telling you, I'm giving you that one people would not go back and pay him because we have a society that wants to, you want to feel good about yourself. We want to eliminate any kind of consequence, don't we? And the reality of eliminating consequence in our life is that you have this kind of egalitarian free-for-all where we just do what feels good and yet we want to deny the consequences and yet we still live with them. And I think that's why our society is so miserable so much of the time. We want to pretend like the consequences really aren't happening. The consequences aren't existing. But yet we have room after room after room after room filled across this nation in counseling where people are looking for answers. And those counselors are saying, well, there's really no right or wrong. It's just how you feel about it. My friends, that's not giving people what they need. They're not feeling any better about the situation. Because life 
gives us consequences. When I was in fourth grade, how old are you when you're in fourth grade? Okay, I was 16. But anyway, when you're in fourth grade, or when I was in fourth grade for Christmas, I got a bike. So proud of this bike. This bike was phenomenal. This bike was from Sears and Roebuck. Yep. Come on now. From Sears and Roebuck. And it stood about this high. And it had tires that were like this thin. And it had a handlebar that swooped out like this. And it had a big old wide seat on it. And it had fenders all the way around. And I just felt like saying to mom and dad, are you kidding me? Put a basket with flowers on it, why don't you? And a little ringy bell. That's what I got. All my friends are getting like the Diamondback XRS. You know, the Sledgehammer 3000. But I get the Sears and... Thank God it didn't go like this in the frame, okay? That was just the next step for what I received for Christmas 1975. So all my friends are on their really cool bikes. And you know what? They're not going to the store and, and going on hard roads and riding to school where this bike is designed to go. They're riding in the dirt. We built our own dirt tracks and all stuff. So what am I doing? Insanity. I'm trying to ride where these guys are. At least I went and I bought a, like a normal 10-speed handlebar to try to toughen up my bike, right? Like, who are you kidding? And I took off the fenders, Right? So then everywhere I drove, when it was like wet out, I'd have like a thing up my back, right? But I wasn't going to wear the fenders. I'd wear mud up my back, but I'm not going to wear the fenders. And so uh, we, had a, we built our own BMX, <laughs> I can't even say BMX, BMX plus Sears and Roebuck um, track uh, across the street in this church parking lot. Uh, that was, it wasn't a parking lot, it was like a dirt field. And they had this drainage ditch that would come down, and it was about this wide, and we would jump it. We would jump the drainage ditch. Can I just tell you, it did not go well the first four times I tried to jump that ditch. But I worked up to it, and I could actually jump the ditch on this bike. You know, if we, back, that was back before you could, like, record it. I'd be famous that you actually did this on this bike. You know, I did this for a few years. And then my parents, my dad would actually see me. He'd look out the window and he'd see me across the street. And he, I'd come home and he goes, are you trying to jump that bike? Well, yeah, Dad, that's what kids do my age, and this is what you, you know... He goes, don't jump that bike. It can't handle the pressure. I'm like, I didn't say I wasn't going to jump the bike because then I'd be lying. But I just was like, you know, pleading the fifth. Riding home one day from school, there was a great curb. And it was, a, it was an asphalt curb coming out of a parking lot. And then it was a descending, like, dirt area, gravel area that went out to the road. And this curb had been kind of mushed down. It wasn't angled. It was mushed. And so we would always jump that curb. And all my friends were out ahead of me because, you know, they had like turbo on their bikes and things. And I just had me. And uh, so I'm riding. They all go off the thing and they're all riding home. And I'm trying to keep up. I hit this thing. I go off. I launch. And, you know, I do like a Superman. No, I didn't do a Superman. But I launch off this thing. And here's the really unique thing that happened in that moment. The bike went up. I went up like this. And then my forks and my front tire went that way. There went Roebuck while I'm still riding Sears. And I auger into the ground with my chin and the side of my face. I knock out a tooth. I'm bleeding. And my friends are gone. And this little old lady that was a teacher or something, she saw this. I'm in the back of her car. She's just a great lady. We loaded up the bike. We even went and found Roebuck and threw him back in the car. And 
And uh, I'm just bleeding. She throws a towel on my face. And the conversation between me and God on the way home went something like this. Are you kidding me? I have to live with this bike, first of all, and all my friends, and now you make the bike break. And I'm in pieces. And now I'm going to be in more pieces when I get home and mom and dad see me in pieces. The only good thing, redeeming quality, is that that bike was broken. So we'll get back to the story in a minute, but isn't it interesting my first response while I'm bleeding and losing teeth is to blame God for that action. What do we do in our lives with the blame game? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had some things that he had to deal with. True humility is not looking down on yourself, but it's looking up to Christ. Really the essence of what we're talking about today is humility. And I want you to grasp that. I want you to hold that. Because that's the key. You're going to find out that Nebuchadnezzar's final thought on the entire thing was about humility. Had he learned humility on the front side, he would not have had to gone through what he went through. So let's examine it this morning. And as we move through this, you're going to see the example straight out of Scripture that we're going to glean. Where does the problem come from and what do we do with it? There have been a lot, and hear me clearly, there have been a lot of erroneous, well-intentioned statements made to people who are suffering that had nothing to do with why they were suffering. And that's on pastors and that's on counselors. So I want you to listen carefully because many of you counsel people, many of you are asked, why is God doing this to me? And you have to give an answer. You may even ask that question yourself. You need to listen to the details wrapped up in this passage today. Because the answers, you're going to get them. You're going to get them. Let's start with this morning, a polemic. Anybody know what a polemic is? A polemic is an accusation. And it has to do with some kind of a, a, a reasoning problem. And so ours this morning is what? What have you done to me? And this is a quote straight from Nebuchadnezzar. Let's get into the passage this morning out of Daniel 4. We already know that what's happened is Daniel has come. He's been summoned by Nebuchadnezzar. He has this horrible dream, another dream. Dreamy boy is having another one. God's speaking to him. And so Daniel says, look, God's going to make you go insane. Now, we threw out that question in our life groups, uh, what was it, two weeks ago. And it was a controversial question. I'm going to explain it today. The question was this, and it's the only time I've ever put a time limitation on a question in our life groups. Because I knew it would stir up a ton of controversy. But this is what I'm telling you, my friends, is the reason we have to examine this question is because people talk about these things and teach erroneously on it. But the reality is it's here. So what do we do with it? And the question was, does God make people go insane? Does God cause mental illness? Now I got your attention, don't I? Well, let's look. Let's look at the passage this morning. What have you done to me? Verse 28 through 33 is where we'll, where we'll start. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. What, what, what was this? It, it was the issue of the dream... The dream saying what would happen. Daniel saying, may it never be. Daniel warning Nebuchadnezzar saying, change your attitude, change your heart, repent, and maybe God will spare you from this and continue your prosperity. We pick up the story. 
All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, now stop. Picture that he's up on a royal roof. What's the deal with being on a roof? You're on a roof at that time, so you can see everything. And while it doesn't say that somebody asked a question, did you notice that? It just says that he answered. Well, we have to speculate that somebody must have projected some kind of a question here. So under our speculative, imaginary world, imagine him walking on the roof. He's on the roof. And maybe there's servants up there. Maybe there's some of his royal court up there. Maybe some of these Chaldean kiss-ups are up there. And, and one of them pipes up like, Oh, great king, look at the great land that you've built. Isn't it fantastic? Bottom line, somebody asked a question, and Nebuchadnezzar answered. I, I find it fascinating that God could care less about the question. God could care less. He didn't even record the question. What God's trying to show us is this man's heart. And how we got to where we are. And so it says, the king answered. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now remember that what's being stated here is, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be driven out from your kingdom. It's going to be for a period of seven years. And you will be reestablished once you realize who's in control. Who's given you all of this. Who truly is the Most High. God's making a statement with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. As we move through this this morning, the question is, is God responsible for what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, if you're going through your sermon notes, you already see a little bit of of how I'm approaching this. Number one, let's say yes. Why are we saying yes? Well, because the scripture is emphatic here. There's no denying it. It says, Quote, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. The word, the word from heaven, the word from God, that unless you change, unless you recognize me as the Almighty, if you keep proclaiming yourself as the Almighty, and that all of this was built under your hand, I'm going to humble you. Let's change that word, shall we? I'm going to humiliate you. And until you recognize me as that person, by the way, it'll be seven years, This is how it's going to go down. So, question. Is God responsible for what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? What do you say? Yes. But what if we say no? Why would I say no? There was a little boy. He wasn't so little. He was 10 years old. And he was bleeding out of his mouth. And he lost a tooth. And he had a bad attitude. And he had asphalt on the side of his face. And he's blaming God for not holding Roebuck onto Sears. Is he right? 
Well, not, some, of you are, some of you are shaking your head no. You can say no. It's okay. I know it's me. <laughs> no! Now, if God wanted to hold that bike together, fine. It would have taken a miracle, but God could have held that bike together. But that did not happen because God was not with me. Yet I'm blaming God. So let's look at it through those eyes. No. God's not responsible for what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Why would we say that? Well, look at Nebuchadnezzar's own words. He's been warned two times already that he needs to change his proud attitude. And yet, what does he say? By the way, did you notice how long of a period of time from the warning Daniel gave him till the time he's walking on the roof? How long? A year. God was patient, wasn't he? God was patient. But he says, my mighty works, my kingdom. And it says literally before the words left his mouth, the voice from heaven came down. It says, which I have built with my mighty power. So who's responsible? What have you done to me? Is God responsible for your trouble? Some of you would say yes. Because my God, what I've been told is that He's this loving, compassionate, all-powerful God. Raise your hand if you've heard this one. If God is so powerful and so loving, why is there evil in the world and why is it happening to these people? Have you heard that one? Okay, then you're going to become a great counselor at the end of this sermon. You're going to have an answer for this. Okay? Is God responsible for your trouble? Well, yes. Oh, no. like... <laughs> Okay, C-SPAN is on, and I think that's going to be more interesting than where you're going, Pastor. So, for His purpose of working in us for our benefit. Is God responsible for your trouble? On occasion, yes. Why? Let's look. Turn to Philippians 2, if you will. I love this passage. Absolutely love this passage. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... By the way, these are rebellious people he's talking about, right? What's it say? So as you have always obeyed. These are people who are living righteously before God. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, this is a serious thing between you and God. It's not something where you get to change God for your convenience. You need to work out what God expects from you so you live in harmony with God. Because what God expects is good, is righteous, is right, is healthy. Is, it, it breathes life. Now I can believe I can jump that curb a hundred times with the Sears and Roebuck, right? How many of you would have signed me up for Idiot of the Year? Can I just tell you? Okay, sure. I admit it. But what do they say about, you know, something about good company and presence of people and all that? Point being, I know we all make really bad decisions. It's in our nature. And we're going to get to that in a minute. We all make bad decisions. So what do we do with that? We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that we're fearful of God. 
That God has got this lightning bolt. He's going he's gonna to nail us with it. He's just sitting and waiting to manipulate your life so you're miserable. That's not what God is. That's not who God is. What he did with Nebuchadnezzar, what he's doing in this story with Nebuchadnezzar, is so that Nebuchadnezzar gets to a point of realizing how good God is. And what you'll see at the end of the story, not up for debate, not up for you and I to sit and figure out if this was just or unjust, the person it happens to, the person who goes through seven years of insanity, of humiliation, his first words are, God is just. I deserved it. You'll see it in a minute. What about your troubles? What about the troubles of the people around you who want to blame God? Folks, a lot of those troubles happen because we bring them on ourselves. Sometimes, yes. As you continue on in verse 13, it says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. His good pleasure, exactly that. Good, and it's a pleasure for Him to do the work in you. Because He's trying to guide you, He's trying to lead you into those things that He has marked out for you. He's trying to encourage you. And sometimes, folks, we're not listening. Have you ever, fallen, have you ever heard that, had that inner encounter with the person that's just not listening? Right? How many of your, your moms or your dads did this one, right, when you weren't listening? Mine didn't. Mine just, no, I'm just kidding. But what will you do? What do you do with your children or someone at work or an employee or here at church? I don't know, whatever. With someone who's not listening. How concerned, how involved, how loving are you if you just say, this is a waste of time, you're not listening, I'm out of here. Is that the God you want? It's not the God I want. And so God pursues us according to His what? His good pleasure. And so much of the time, my friends, yes, does God, is God responsible sometimes for the troubles in my life? Yes, because I'm not listening. And He's saying, I've got something really good for you over here. You just have to listen. And if you're not listening, maybe I have to get your attention. So in that sense, yes. God will work in our lives according to His good purpose, His good pleasure. For some, some of the just transitions of our own lives, just coming here. And we love being here. But you know what? We didn't sit down one day and say, hey, Concord sounds real good. Let's just do it. We should have, but, you know, it wasn't on our radar. God took us through an incredibly difficult thing to get our attention, to get us to seek Him, to see what new thing was coming and what was going to transpire. And we wouldn't change anything for the world. So, for your trouble, is God involved? He could be. How about no? Sometimes it's our own pride and rebellion towards God that's the cause of our own trouble. Amen? Can I get an amen on that one? Right? The trouble, if... You see that? That's capitalized. The trouble, if sent by God for the effect of correction. That's it. The purpose. We've moved out of the polemic into the purpose. Have you ever gotten to the point of saying, what's the reason for this? You go through a tragedy and you want reason, don't you? Why did this happen? Give me a purpose behind it. Give me a reason as to 
justify going through all this pain and all this difficulty? What is the reason for my tragedy? Well, let's look in verse 37 because you're going to get your eyes open to something great here by the person who went through the tragedy. By the way, verse 4 here, let me remind you, Nebuchadnezzar wrote it. This is his own personal testimony. Verses 1 through 3 start the chapter out by him just giving praise to God. Letting you know right out of the gate, that is my God, I'm following Him, and I've changed. Then he gives us this story about what happened, what transpired. And we get down here to verse 33, and you start hearing him talk in his praise again. His commentary on what happened. Where did Nebuchadnezzar land when he's talking about what was the reason for all this tragedy? How do I feel about it? Verse 37 says what? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven for all His works are horrible and He's a jerk. That's what He wrote, right? Let me read you what the Word of God says by Nebuchadnezzar's own words. For all His works are right and His ways are just and those who walk in pride He is able to what? Humble. Nebuchadnezzar learned what God was trying to teach him. If I were to ask you a question right now, all you great biblical scholars, if if there's a chapter in the Bible you're going to turn to that exemplifies suffering and trouble, what what book is that? Job. Read the end of Job. Job received back more than double what he lost. That's what God's in the business of doing. Alright? Nebuchadnezzar, you'll see here, just prior to this, he talks about in a soliloquy here, He talks about how God established even more back to him once he had gone through this. And he named God the mighty God. God gave him back more than what he had lost. So let's keep the right perspective of of who God is. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the glory for what in fact God had given him. His struggle was pride. Our own desires and passions cause us to sin against God. I'm going to give you a a little paraphrase of Romans 1. You can write that down. It should be in your notes. But we'll go and read James 4. So turn to James 4 while I'm telling you what Romans 1 is about. The concept here is our own desires. Okay, let's go back to the question. The question is under the purpose. What's the purpose for this suffering? What's the purpose for this tragedy? Why am I getting blamed? Who's to blame here, right? The challenge for you and I to wrestle with is... You know, what's the reason for my tragedy? Sometimes it's our own desires, right? It's our own passions that cause these difficulties. Romans 1 speaks to this and, and is put very carefully that God created man and that at a point in time, God has made it so that man can know God even if they're not told specifically about Him. Today I'm giving you specific revelation, Right? I'm telling you specifically about who God is, specifically from the Word of God. Well, what if nobody ever came and told you? God said, and Paul refers to this in Romans 1, saying men are still without excuse because God has built into nature the idea that He exists. As a matter of fact, He's built it so so much, He's integrated it so uh, definitely that it would compel men to seek out who is God. Now think about this. Think about all the civilizations throughout mankind. They've always tried to worship something, haven't they? In the United States, we're more about now worshiping our cell phones, our materialistic things. There's something intrinsic within the human 
body, the mind, the psyche, the spirit, the soul that wants to worship something. That's what Paul's referring to. And that God has given enough just through His creation for us to be directed towards God. Here's the problem, he says. That man chose to give up worshiping the Creator for the created. Their own pride. And that He sought to reason with them. He sought to send messages to them. He sought over and over. And they kept resisting. And they kept becoming worse and worse in their their, uh, uh, rebellion towards the Creator. And here's the scary part. Because of our own desires, our own passions against God, our own rebellion towards God, it says this, that God eventually gave them over to their own desires. Folks, those are scary words. What that simply means is this. Think back to when you had a choice, a moral choice, and somebody was watching. Right? When you're at work, you're supposed to be doing what? No, playing solitaire on the computer, of course. When you're at work, you're supposed to be working. I'll never forget, I used to work for a a high-profile company that was right on Hollywood Boulevard. I always tell my kids when the Academy Awards are on, you know, uh, Balcony 5B, that was where my desk was, you know, in the Kodak Theater. They tore our building down. I don't even think this company exists anymore, but this company was highly involved in entertainment stuff, and, and I was in the accounting offices. That's probably why they went bankrupt. But I'll never forget, I'd already given my two weeks notice and I started sloughing off a little bit. Yes, I will admit it, as a 22-year-old, I started acting irresponsible. And so it was towards the end of the day and I, I've never done this. I actually had my feet propped up on the desk. And I, I did have some work in my hands. I was kind of looking at, a, at, I had to actualize our, our, uh, a bill, an expense bill. I was looking at it, but I was totally casual. The president of the company worked across the street where um, the El Capitan Theater is. We had the basement and four floors up. He never, in two years of working there, he never came over to our building. I'm, I'm sitting there with the door open to our office, and who walks by but the president of the company, and my feet are propped up, and my heart just sank. I'm like, and I knew that I was doing something, what? Wrong. And so he leans in and he looks at me and he says, hey, what are the figures uh, last month from RoboShop uh, on our expense account? And I, I, oh, I kid you not. I open a drawer like there's something there. And I look and I said, oh, we were at a million five plus change. He goes, oh, thanks. And he just walked on. <laughs> I said, like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Because he was a very casual guy and that's why the company went down. But... Uh, I felt so much pressure because I didn't think anybody was watching, right? What happens when you know someone's watching? You act a certain way. What are we doing with God? When God removes that pressure, we go over to our own desires. Do you get it? Do you understand it? He leaves us to ourselves and that inevitably leads to destruction. James 4, let's read it. Hopefully you're there by now. And this is a great, great passage that helps us understand this idea of what's the reason for my tragedy? Why is this happening? Is it God's fault? Is it my fault? Is it somebody else's fault? Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud. We're seeing that with Nebuchadnezzar, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's the idea and picture of repentance that fits so perfectly with Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't be casual about this. Because if you're casual and God wants you to get somewhere... My friends, you are going to heap a heap of trouble on yourself because He wants to get your attention. Is it my fault when I suffer because I'm not paying attention to God? Yeah. Because God is who God is. And He wants good things for you. But what do I want to do? I want to jump the Sears and Roebuck off a curb. And so he breaks that, or I break that bike. Because maybe I would have done something even more stupid later on. Take that and magnify that into our lives as adults, folks, and those are huge consequences. He yearns for you jealously. I want a God that's going to come after me if I'm heading to destruction. Amen? So, Is the reason for my trouble God? It can be. But shame on the pastor that stands up here when somebody comes up and they're dealing with depression and they're dealing with an incredible amount of hurt and loneliness and it's not because of sin. It's because there's a lack of serotonin. There's a physiological issue or problem. But the pastor tells them you have sin in your life, you need to get sin out of your life. Shame on that pastor. But shame on the person who comes up and denies that there's sin in their life when it's rampant in their life and expects the pastor just to heal them. You see where I'm going? You've got to take the whole picture, folks. So where does it all come from? Where does the trouble come from? Let me share with you. Ephesians 2, 1-3. through We'll explain it to you. And hang with me. Come on. I know there's a lot here, but guys, this is so important. You're turning into counselors this morning, okay? Ephesians 2. This is one of the best demonstrations of where our problems come from. Alright? I'm going to just put it up there real quick. The world, the evil one, and the natural man. you got three things pulling at you all the time. Where do I get that from? Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. So, I'm dealing with sin in and of myself because I'm just born into sin. It's a natural part of who I am. Right? You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay? So I'm walking in this. Okay? Following the course of this world. There's your second part. The world. 
following the prince of the power of the air. There's another influence, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, the next several verses are great verses because it talks about what God does to change that. Let me clarify this, that all this is saying is that there are multiple avenues whereby we are tempted, whereby sin involves itself and tries to destroy us. One is, I don't need Satan to mess me up. And I don't need you to mess me up. I obviously can do just a fine job by myself. All right? And so can you. You have that as part of your nature. When Christ comes into you, that nature no longer has to be the loudest voice. That's the best way to put it. You still struggle with that because you have a history. Right? You have a history. I cannot throw a softball to save my life. I got lucky last week. We had a triple play. Never, ever, ever happens. But it was because one person told me when I started playing softball as a 28-year-old man, hey, have you always thrown like a girl? So now every time I get ready to throw, I'm like, okay, is this more like Sally or Brenda? It's always in my mind. I don't even know that I throw like a girl. But it's that history that wants to haunt me, right? I have to get over it. I have to move past it. Folks, we have... Now, you're all going to like... like, Hey, Brenda, nice throw if you come out to the game from now on. Folks, you have that history in and of yourselves. Satan, as well, is roaming around like a lion. Peter talks about this. Seeking to what? To devour. To destroy. But there's also the whole element of the world seeking to take us down. you got three things working against you. So... When we sin, when we have trouble come upon us, when we have tragedy, what was happening with Nebuchadnezzar? It was his own. It was his pride. And God said, you're taking glory for something you had nothing to do with, Nebuchadnezzar. And I need you to understand that. I need you to see it. It wasn't Satan causing Nebuchadnezzar to do this. It wasn't the other pressures of the world. It was himself. Why do we have trouble heaped upon us? There's three good reasons. Hold those in check, will you? And when you're struggling, and when you're trying to find out what's the reason behind my struggle and why I'm having this happen, maybe it's just because of my bad choice, maybe it's because God's trying to get my attention. If it is my bad choice and there is sin involved, where is that sin coming from? What's the reason? And deal with it. Deal with it. What is the reason for my tragedy? Well, sometimes God needs to make us contemplate and adjust our thinking. Plain and simple. Sometimes there's no sin involved whatsoever. He just needs us to focus on what He needs us to focus on. And we're not listening. You heard me talk about that already. Our troubles aren't always the result of sin. They can be a a necessary evil. Let me talk about this real quickly. Jesus heals the blind man. John 9, 1-7. I won't have us turn there. But we went through this and... And here's this blind man and the disciples and the Pharisees and the crowd around bring this blind man and they say, what sin has caused him to be blind? Right? Because that's how we think. You've got some horrible thing that's happened to you and it's... Remember I told you that pastors do that. Counselors do that sometimes. 
We don't get away from this thinking sometimes, even though it's been proven to be bad thinking. Boy, if there's tragedy in someone's life, there must be sin. Well, okay, there could be sin. But there could just also be a trial that's going and happening. And we'll talk about that with Fanny Crosby in just a moment. But what does Jesus say to these accusers? He says, why does it have to be sin? There's no sin involved here. There's no sin by the parents. There's no sin on his half. This happened so that this moment and the glory of God could be shown so that you can what? You can believe. Now really, if you're going to follow the chain and connect the dots, who's to blame for that guy being blind from birth? We are. Because it takes something. Remember the uncommon testimony I told you about? That Nicole's story just isn't good enough for us. It's got to be a little bit more dramatic for us to really get excited and inspired. We've got to change that, folks. Because the more it takes those kinds of dramatic, hurtful, difficulty, trial-laden experiences for us to move and connect with God, we own that. But what if we were just to listen? What if we were to simply just to come to Him naturally in pursuit of all that is good so that He didn't have to do these things? Fanny Crosby wrote many of the hymns that we sing today. She wrote over a thousand hymns. Incredible songwriter. The depth of what she would write was phenomenal. She was blind. Not only was she blind, the things that happened to her in the 19th century, the things that happened to her were brutal because she was blind. But God superintended and made certain things come about. She was told by a schoolmaster where she went never to utter a word. Because her writings, her poems were so powerful, it was getting embarrassing for the staff. And so he told her, you may no longer write and you may no longer do what you've been doing. You must be silent. And if it wasn't for some really weird thing that happened, there used to be doctors, I don't even remember the name for this, Philip, you might know this, where doctors in the 19th century used to come and feel your head. And based off of how your head was constructed, they knew where you would succeed and you know, left brain, right brain kind of stuff. And God worked through this guy. He came through it and he said, this child is brilliant and would excel in poetry. Why is this child silent? It was because of God working through that person that she was given a pen again. And she was able to pen thousands of hymns. Now, fast forward to her adult life. She was asked, if you could be sighted if you weren't blind would you have taken it if god could have healed you at an early age would you have taken it? she said no absolutely not it has been my greatest joy to have this malady and i'm just paraphrasing here because the fact that i'm blind makes me see jesus like you cannot see him i'm not distracted by all the things that you see And so therefore, my focus is much more acute. I would never trade what's been given to me. You may see it as a tragedy. I see it as a blessing. That's incredible. And so sometimes, yes, God does work in those avenues or those ways. Sometimes it's just the foolishness of men that brings those tragedies as far as the reasons. Great quote 
from one of the great playwrights of our contemporary time, whoever wrote my wife's favorite movie, Hitch. If you've not seen the movie, it's, a, it's kind of a romantic comedy, a rom-com, and uh, this one gentleman connects people up romantically that never had a chance to meet ever in the world, and it all backfires on him. And so uh, Kevin James plays the protagonist, and he's hilarious in the movie, and then there's this beautiful millionaire heiress that he connects her up with, and it's like, you know, against all odds, and then it all comes crashing down. She finds out about it, that it was all a manipulation. And so Hitch runs down to her big yacht, and he has this conversation with her, trying to repair what had happened, and he says to her, would you have noticed if I didn't? And she kind of, well, of course. And he stops, and, he's, and I thought this was brilliant writing, and he says, really? And then they just direct her to kind of, well, eventually, I would have noticed. Folks, would you have noticed Christ if he didn't, if he didn't get involved? Would you notice God if He didn't come after you in certain ways? Does God come sometimes and bring a difficult hand? Yes. But it's because He wants to get our attention for the good. How do I know that? Humility is strong, not bold. Quiet, not speechless. Sure, not arrogant. Here's how I know it. Because this story ends in a positive. A huge positive. Turn back to Daniel and I'll show you what I mean. Where does my help come from? That's a statement from Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the heavens. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Verse 34 and 36 here gives us the understanding of why, why did this story that seems so tragic, seems so difficult to understand, why do bad things happen even though God is in control? Who's to blame Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of all of it. Verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. We sang this today, didn't we? I don't know if the writer of the song Forever took it from Nebuchadnezzar's statement, but it matches perfectly. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? What have you done? Now for you and I, we can sit here and say that God is unfair, we wouldn't do it that way, how come this is happening? And we'll get those questions from people. And you may be asking that question today. I want you to hear from the person who suffered. I want you to hear from the person who suffered what his assessment of God is after having gone through it. Verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Remember at the end of James 4, it says, if you do these things, if you humble yourself, He will what? He will exalt you. What is Nebuchadnezzar saying? 
My kingdom is even greater than it was before. To his praise, not mine. Nebuchadnezzar learned it. How do we know? Listen to these words. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all His works are right and His ways are just. That is His ruling. Do you get it? The one who suffered is the one who is saying, He is just. If you are in a counseling situation with somebody, you take them here. And you say, it's easy for you to say that, but you've got to go through it. You've got to go through it and see where God lands once you go through it. But you've got to humble yourself because this is what he says in conclusion. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. End of story. End of story. Why do bad things happen? Sometimes because of sin. Sometimes because God's trying to get our attention. Who's to blame? Most of the time us. But in some really weird, esoteric way, sure, you could say God's to blame because you say, well, God's in charge of all of it and God definitely brought this upon Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because of his pride. Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar is to blame. But God is a God who will pursue those who he loves and he is a God of goodness and righteousness and he will take us to wherever he has to take us to get us to see that so that we don't take Sears and Roebuck off a curb and destroy ourselves. Get it? Yeah. Last point. Humility, that's our choice that we need to make. Humility brings healing, which is God's choice. Expect God to exalt you when you humble yourself and exalt Him above all. And then that last verse is what Nebuchadnezzar had stated. Humility is a necessary prerequisite for grace. When you are humiliated, grace is on the way. It is, o- <clears throat> it is only the one who can see the value of being humbled that is completely righteous. The humble person has changed humiliation into humility. Let me close in prayer. Father, I ask that you help us understand and grasp the depth of this message this morning. This is where we live. This is where we struggle. This is the challenge and difficulty for so many of us and those around us. Let us learn from the reality of the individual who went through it and their testimony, their uncommon testimony, that you are right and you are just. And stop blaming you unnecessarily for the things that we choose. And help us not to live in a world of blame or world of guilt, but to move into righteousness and to draw near to you so that you will exalt us. Thank you, God, to your glory. Amen.